Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's been 40 years since the Islamic Revolution in Iran. The revolution set in motion rivalries that have mostly intensified until today. Simon Mabon thinks a lot about the Iran-Saudi rivalry. Mabon is the director of the oldest peace and conflict research center in the UK, the Richardson Institute at Lancaster University. He's also the head of the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization Project, a two-year initiative that helped result in the new report, Saudi Arabia and Iran, the Struggle to Shape the, the Middle East. And Mabon's also the author of Saudi Arabia and Iran, Power and Rivalry in the Middle East. You're up to your ears in the rivalry, Simon Mabon. I really am. It has its good days and its bad days. Well, I think a lot of people are reflecting on the 40th anniversary of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. There's lots of news about it. Sure. And everyone probably is thinking, well, the the die was cast right there. The rivalries that we see today were an inevitable result of this thing. Do you believe that? No, I, I don't. I think it's easy to understand why people do believe that. I mean, we've we've seen the photographs, we've seen the video footage. We we look back over that time in Tehran, those those fateful ten days when Khomeini were, was heralded on the streets. Millions of people were were there to greet him across the streets of Tehran, and and the Shah's abdication. And 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 those images conjure up a great deal of sort of populism, I guess. But. But if we think about what happened directly after that, there wasn't this this hostility that we see today. There was a, a moment of of potential rapprochement. There was a moment of optimism, a moment for dialogue between not only the Islamic Republic and and its neighbours, but also more more broadly. I mean, Khomeini had been in France. He'd been living in France in exile for a number of years. And that suggests that there was this slight possibility, but it was the way in which things turned in the following years that meant that we are where we are today, I guess. Do both countries, Iran and Saudi Arabia, come to rely on this other to maintain their domestic constituency? Did it become too big of it? They're both countries that don't have, you know, really solid legitimacy for what they're doing. Sure, and they're yeah. they're using the other as something to keep it. Yeah, I guess I guess that that's a good way of looking at it. There are serious domestic problems in, in both states in terms of economic issues, in terms of uh, demographics, in terms of identity problems, in terms of questions about the, the role of religion within the fabric of, of these two incredibly devout, ostensibly devout states. And so when you've got all of that restlessness, all of that political uncertainty, instability, then regimes need to find a way of, of trying to capture it, trying to to control it. And the easy way of doing that, of course, as we see across history, as we see in the West, as we see elsewhere in the world, is by creating this external other, this sort of external threat. And that seeks to sort of bring people together, to, to unite them in the face of, of a broader, almost existential threat. Is that is power the real problem here, or is it ideology and religion? Are these those things true problems, or is it really the power? I think it's it's a combination of the two. I think actors derive power from claims to legitimacy, but I think that legitimacy gives power. But I think ultimately, it's about regime power. It's about a regime desire to survive, both in Tehran and in Riyadh, but. A regime that is able to, or regimes that are able to draw upon a various sort of different pools of legitimacy, with religion obviously being such an important 
pool, such a deep reserve of legitimacy. But of course, in Iran as well, you see see reserves of legitimacy coming from ideas of resistance, resistance to to U.S. imperialism, let's say, or resistance to uh, to Israel. So there are lots of different ways that regimes are able to cultivate this legitimacy. And some would say that it's ideology for ideology's end. But I think others would say, well, a more cynical reading is they are using this type of language. They're using Islamic ideas. They're using all of these different ideological tools as a means of maintaining their own power. How do you react to what's been happening in Saudi Arabia? It seems like they're the country that's really been changing and driving power politics and the new crown prince yeah. is in there making pitches in a million sure. different directions. Um, the Khashoggi affair obviously captured people's imagination in a way that far bigger problems like Yemen maybe have not. But, yeah, of course. Uh, did, but it doesn't seem to have really changed the game. The game still remains the same and the power politics just keeps driving this thing. Well, I think the game's still going on right now. I think, I think you're right to say it's not changed yet, but I think there's, there's a chance that it could well change. We don't know quite how this Hashoji affair is going to, to, to look like in the end game, if you will. I think that it's interesting in the sense that it's raised a bunch of really important normative questions about human rights, about what what regimes can do and what they shouldn't do, let's say. And I think that may change things in the long run. But I think the more cynical reading is it probably won't. But if you think about Saudi Arabia right now, it's going through this massive change because it's it's trying to figure out how it wants to organize itself in the future. We know that in the past, the way that, that monarchs have been chosen is they have to be the sons of uh, Ibn Saud, the, the initial founding father of, the, ki- of you, the kingdom. You're going to run out sooner or later. Exactly. And so at some point, they were going to have to pass on to the next generation or the next generation. And so that point was going to be quite problematic. Passing over into this sort of generational change brings with it a whole host of different challenges, claims to legitimacy, claims to seniority, claims to being the right person, having the right portfolio of expertise. And that was going to bring with it a range of challenges, not only for the person that was chosen, in this case, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, but also for the kingdom as it tried to ride out all of these different challenges arising from that type of debate. Are they doing – it seems like they're not do, exactly doing the right thing here, that they've chosen someone who is hot-headed and the war in Yemen and the yeah. execution of Khashoggi says that and the whole world is watching. Yeah, exactly. I mean it's it's a really difficult one I guess because although – Although it's obviously the Al Saud, a kingdom named after a family, there are particular family lineages within that broader Al Saud tribe. And and King Salman has obviously decided that he wants to keep control of the Saudi kingdom within his particular smaller familial line, if you will. He wants to hand it over to, to his um, to his family. He wants to keep it there. So by passing it on to his son, Mohammed bin Salman, he wants to keep it in the family. And in doing so, he's passed over perhaps more qualified individuals, people with more experience, people who've served as ambassadors across the world who know how the game works, right? And this is a, an individual, the, the crown prince is an individual who studied in Riyadh, he didn't study abroad, he didn't come to the US and spend time at one of the great institutions here. 
He studied in Riyadh and he was and sort of he was involved in Riyadh politics rather than global politics. And I think that's showing now. He was able to behave in a certain way in Riyadh and he's trying to do the same way on the world stage. And he's realizing that it's a different game altogether. I'm talking with Simon Maban. He's the author of Saudi Arabia and Iran, Power Rivalry in the Middle East. And he's in Chicago. He's speaking at a couple of events, one at DePaul University tomorrow at 4. And then a week from today, he is at the Evanston Public Library doing an event at the Evanston Public Library. I wanted to ask him more questions about Iran and the United States. Sure. The United States, obviously, during the Trump administration here, has pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement yeah. and taken a all-or-nothing mm-hmm. um, attitude towards the rivalry, and just gone in with Saudi Arabia, and um, you know has people who advocate the overthrow of Iran as yeah. Secretary of State and National Security Advisor now. Um, why? What does this tilt do to the to the rivalry? Nothing good, let's say. I think. Obviously, being the director of a peace institute, I'm a big advocate of diplomacy, patience, and letting things play out through dialogue. But dialogue involves mutual trust, mutual respect, and working towards those things. And I think what has happened recently with the Trump administration's decision to withdraw from the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, has meant that that, that line of dialogue, that avenue for diplomacy has been removed. And it's, it's dramatically altered the level of trust between the two different sides. It's created a bigger sense of fear. It's created perceptions of distrust and suspicion. And in that case, it's it's ratcheting up tensions. Iran is feeling more and more threatened as a consequence of this. And so it's it's creating an even more uneasy atmosphere in the Middle East. We see daily news stories that that Iran is supporting these these violent militias across the region. And of course, Iran has uh, an interest in supporting groups that have been using violence. But this type of rhetoric is further demonizing a state, pushing it into a corner, pushing it further and further away from the international community. And that is not healthy for diplomacy. That is not a healthy position for a state to be in, particularly one that has such a long history of ostracization and being marginalized from from world politics. Obviously, the oil resources of the region play such a big role in all this. Sure. The United States is interested in them. Russia um, is interested in what's going on in the region. Um, I've been thinking a lot about Russia and OPEC and the United States, and everybody's a big oil producer here. Yeah. And they're all trying to manipulate the situation to their end. Certainly. It's, it's, um, how, do you, how does what Russia's been doing um, – they seem to be a traditional ally of Iran, but now we're citing more – moving around with Saudi Arabia and working with OPEC and Saudi Arabia is trying to get them involved in OPEC permanently. Yeah. Uh, this is a, there, there's a game going on here. Yeah, there certainly is. And it, it's not just a, a Middle Eastern game, if you will. It's got hallmarks of a broader, greater game, if you will, that we saw uh, a couple of hundred years ago. So I think it's, it's really quite interesting, but also incredibly dangerous right now. We know that Iran and Russia have got this long rival, long history of relations, as you've said. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to continue that type of relationship. If you go back to, to June last year, the opening match of the, the, the World Cup back in Russia, and one of the, the images that I remember is a shot of, of Vladimir Putin and Gianni Infantino, the head of FIFA, 
with Mohammed bin Salman and, and bin Salman and Vladimir Putin were sort of reaching over Infantino and talking and displaying this sort of this friendship. I mean, granted, it was Russia versus Saudi Arabia, so they were going to be there. But it, it seemed to suggest that that was maybe one of the new types of relationships that are emerging. And with the, the, the tensions that are emerging between Riyadh and Washington – that potentially is going to push the Saudis closer towards the Russians, closer to Moscow, which really complicates the, the set of relationships that are going on in the Middle East today. And it's, it's a real complicated, fractious mess that, that the people of the region are obviously paying the heaviest price. And Iran is inevitably driven into the arms of China. Quite possibly. We know that the Chinese have been spending a great deal of money. The Belt and Road Initiative has put a great deal of money into, into the Gulf, into the Middle East. Beyond that, we know that, that Beijing has been investing money in Iran. So, yeah, I, I think that's quite a possible logical conclusion. I'm talking with Simon, Simon Mabon. He's the author of Saudi Arabia and Iran, Power and Rivalry in the Middle East. And I wanted to say a few things about um, Yemen for a moment, where the Rivalry seems to have demonstrated itself uh, most forcefully in Saudi Arabia's uh, intrusion into Yemen. And um, how do you uh, – when you talk to Saudi Arabia about what's happening in Yemen, they say it's Iran. The Houthis are supported by yeah. Iran and the U.S. seems to go along with this, uh, right. the Trump administration. Uh, how do you begin to unsquare this circle? With great difficulty, I fear. And Yemen is one of those really tragic cases that it's, I guess, the perfect storm where lots of different agendas have come together. And unraveling all of those issues is going to take a great deal of time and, and a great deal of creative diplomacy. And I certainly don't envy the UN and, and Martin Griffiths, who tried to, to do this over the coming months, because ostensibly you have this, this Saudi-Iranian rivalry playing. But that's not all that's happening. The Saudis have got their own political wranglings going on in Yemen, with them being keen to support particular issues, particular actors. The Iranians were not directly there as much as they would have liked to be historically. But by creating this narrative that said Iran is manipulating the Houthis, it sort of became a self-perpetuating truth that Iran did get involved. But then you've got this complex tribal web taking place. You've got Daesh trying to exert influence. You've got Al-Qaeda trying to exert influence there. You've got a secessionist movement trying to influence things. You've got, you've got Yemen essentially imploding and you've got 23 million people on the verge of starvation. It's a big issue. Do, do you have any confidence that the ceasefire is going to lead to something? I hope so. I, I have a lot of hope, but I don't have confidence, I fear. I fear the, the problem is too big. But every day that the ceasefire holds, every day that war doesn't break out, is a day closer to something like that happening. Because it's about building trust. It's about creating trust in the people that are in the conflict. Creating trust that your enemies actually want the same thing as you do, which is peace. But of course, then thrashing out what those deals are, what that peace might actually look like is, is difficult. But if you have the trust that they want the same thing as you, essentially peace, then there's a possibility. Uh, you helped with this two-year initiative. You were the head of this group of people who wrote this report, Saudi Arabia and Iran, the struggle to reshape the Middle East. And you did a chapter on Bahrain. I did. Which um, you talked about as being maybe the epicenter of the Saudi-Iran rivalry. It seems to get overlooked in the news yeah. and things, even though the U.S. has the fifth fleet in Bahrain. And of course. Obviously, there were some tensions there at the in the Arab Spring that resulted in Saudi Arabia running right in there and setting yeah. things straight. 
Um, how important is Bahrain in the future? I think it's it's a, an incredibly important strategic place. I mean, let's not forget that this is this is an archipelago of 33 islands sort of taken as one now that is a great deal smaller than the city of Chicago. I mean, let's not forget that. That is a tiny, tiny, uh, a tiny, tiny state. What's the population of Chicago? About 10, what, the 10 million in the region or so. 10 million. Okay. All right. That's... Three million in the city. Three million in the city. Interesting. Okay. Well, the population of Bahrain is about 1.3 million. So you've got a tiny population. 50% of those are Bahraini nationals. The rest are expats, migrant workers. But you've got an interesting sectarian split. And that meant that when the protests took place, that that things quickly took on a sectarian dimension, in part because of the creation of a sectarian narrative that, uh, that Nader Hashimi and, and Danny Postel, friend of the show, I believe, yeah. uh, have termed sectarianization. So, so that meant that, that things became sectarian. It became a self-perpetuating narrative, which, which pushed the Shia of Bahrain closer to Iran. And Iran, of course, wanted to support them through their narrative of resistance, through their fraternal commitment to the oppressed of the Muslim world, stemming from the Iranian revolution. But also it showed that the Saudis were incredibly wary about an increased Iranian presence, essentially on their doorstep. It's, it's 16 kilometers from the west coast of Bahrain to the east coast of, of the Saudi kingdom. So it is literally on their doorstep. And it was viewed with a great deal of trepidation by many in Riyadh which is why we saw this, this GCC force, essentially led by Saudi Arabia, going in. And it's a powder keg. Uh, is the rivalry beyond salvation here? I mean, is it, is it gone beyond um, patching things up? No, I don't think so. I mean, going back to your first question about how things could have been, if you look at the history of Saudi-Iranian relations, and by extension, Saudi-U.S. relations, I guess, you see ebbs and flows. So from 1979 to about 1991, things were pretty bad. But then from 91 to 2003, things were looking up. There was a period of rapprochement. The two sides were starting to get along. They were engaging humanitarian support. They were, they were helping each other. But then, obviously, geopolitics reared its head again, the war in Iraq and the, uh, the violence that followed, coupled with the, the election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in Iran. Things got pretty bad there. Simon Maybon is the author of Saudi Arabia and Iran, Power and Rivalry in the Middle East. He's in Chicago, and he'll speak tomorrow at DePaul University at 4 p.m. at the Richardson Library on the Lincoln Park campus. And then a week from today, he'll be at the Evanston Public Library in the evening from 6 o'clock to 7.30. Great to meet you, Simon Maybon, and congratulations on your work. Good luck working on this rivalry. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about fascism, imperialism, and colonialism. They all relied on science. We will begin our series on science and colonialism after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week we bring you a series on the intersection of science and power politics. 
Science has been used to justify colonialism, like when the first British Nobel laureate says, "The success of the of imperialism will depend largely upon the success of the microscope." Fascism too has invoked science, like the time when Hitler's deputy declared Nazism is nothing but applied biology. Columbia historian Timothy Mitchell has thought a lot about how experts were deployed to colonize different parts of the world. His book *Rule of Experts: Egypt, Techno Politics, Modernity* explains how the entire fields of science were created to solve problems that colonialism uh, called.、Uh, Worldviews. Julian Haida speaks with Timothy Mitchell. You use a word often that's techno politics or like a technocrat. You know, we、right. think we think of we think of、uh, autocrats or theocrats. But what is what is a technocrat? Well, I use the term techno politics because what I'm trying to draw attention to is the extent to which lives are lived and governed、um, in relation to a, a dense technical world, whether at the level of, of Computers and electronics, or at the level of infrastructure and large-scale technical projects, you know, so much of the world we inhabit and that we deal with and that we address and that our lives are shaped by, is something that is technical, that is built out of forms of expertise, expert knowledge,、um, involving experts. So, in some ways, it's not directly a question for me of the relationship between science or expertise and government in the sense of. People in Washington or some other site of power, but the way we are actually governed in a very everyday sense by our encounter with、uh, forms of knowledge, expertise, and technical equipment that shapes our lives. And I think that's the better way to think of it than simply a, a question of a sort of relations behind the scenes between one set of people and another, between scientists on the one hand and say government officials on the other. It's more thinking differently about. The very things that make up our world, and in terms of which we we live our lives. A lot of your research has to do with the Middle East, and particularly the British Mandate in Palestine, in Egypt. So, how did expertise serve in the British、uh, administration of the Middle East? Well,、uh, let me start with the example of Egypt, which Britain occupied in 1882, sent an army to invade and take over.、Um, And initially, they thought they were doing that for a short term to bring、um, financial control. And right from the beginning, they introduced a set of financial and economic expertise, something that's going to be part of imperial relations all the way through over the next hundred and fifty years. But then moved from there to other kinds of expertise that became part of the apparatus of occupation and government, as the、um, what was initially temporary turned into an. Extended period of rule,、uh, irrigation and,、uh, engineers, agricultural specialists, and others. And you're saying Now, that these were these were kind of disciplines that were almost created in tandem with the 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 spread of of, of British colonialism. Absolutely, and you could look at any of those examples. If you take、um, economics and finance,、um, nobody really understood what international banking was. How 
uh, sovereign debt worked, what the modes of creating credit and um, imposing sanctions on those who fell behind on interest payments, all those parts of a sort of modern international financial system. Uh, people had begun to write about them, but a modern sort of discipline of, of financial economics didn't exist. Uh, key, few key figures were writing, and they were writing partly between um, the work they did in in, in London and then the work they did writing reports or serving as experts in Cairo. So the very expertise that we uh, that, that helped to form uh, modern social worlds, things that determined how finance worked, um, were actually worked out through the kinds of experiments and the kinds of uh, attempts at rule that Britain was imposing in a place like Egypt. And one could say the same with much more concrete forms like forms of civil engineering the building of, of large new dams or canals or irrigation systems, those two were things there where the very expertise itself, which the British thought of themselves as bringing from elsewhere, uh, they actually developed more or less on the spot um, through uh, imposing and developing a new way of managing the River Nile as, as an irrigation system. So it was central to the forms of government and rule. It was being made through the processes of government and control. Uh, it, it wasn't a, a science that actually came from elsewhere. And um, one of the things that also happened, of course, was that because it was happening in this imperial framework in the context of occupying another country and subjecting it to foreign rule, there was a continual dismissal of existing forms of knowledge, uh, whether local knowledge of people who irrigated their fields and managed the sort of hydraulic system of the Nile or um, other experts from from within the country who had developed other plans. So there was a whole political context in which these modern forms of whether financial engineering, um, hydraulic engineering or so on developed in the colonial context. Yeah, and of course, when people talk about colonialism and excuse colonial uh, impositions, <laughs> they say that it is a civilizing mission. And you use the word modernity as an example of which, you know, say the Egyptians already well knew how to irrigate their land for millennia. The floods kept um, the soil around the Nile fertile. And yet uh, this dam, the Aswan Dam, one of the biggest in the world, was built. It was considered a a feat of civil engineering. And it almost made the Egyptians rethink their relation with, with the land and also the the British colonial authorities could tell the people who live there to do something completely in a, in a new way that wasn't necessarily a better or more civilized way. Is that is that the kind of gist of, of – well, That's part of it. I mean certainly a term like uh, – being modern or being civilized started to be used as part of this and part of a way of distinguishing Europeans from others. I mean, if uh, p people who arrived in Egypt from Europe 50 or 100 years before didn't see themselves as moving from a place that was civilized to a place that was uncivilized, Egypt formed part of a, a general sort of civilized world and uh, everybody was thought of as living in the same time and the same broad civilizational experience. But 
as the sort of disparity in power and the forms of control that a country like Britain is trying to exert over other parts of the world intensify, they develop a new language, a new way of seeing the world. They divide the world in two, into the civilized and the, the not yet civilized and or the people on the, on the way to being civilized. And similarly, as people who are modern on the one hand themselves and those who are either backward or modernizing on the other. Egyptians, when they... Uh, come across this this British way of thinking, are horrified, saying, what, what do you mean we're not part of the civilized world? I mean, you're treating us as if we sort of lived in some remote part of the world the, that had never had writing or culture or religion or anything else that is a normal part of civilization. So this new view of civilized and those in need of being civilized is part of this. But the other thing to bear in mind with this um, sort of technical and technological basis of imperialism is the extent to the damage it did. It was portrayed as an answer to all kinds of problems. If we stick with the example of the irrigation system of the Nile, that, that the Nile was subject to excessive fluctuations, that there were all kinds of issues that had to be dealt with. In fact, in almost every way, what the British did made things worse. I mean, the, the biggest impact of the changes begun then and continued on through the 20th century was that the Nile no longer flooded and no longer brought the very fertilizing silt. Um, all the silt was now trapped behind the dam, the, the first dam, and then later a much higher dam that was built. So the soil became much less fertile, uh, crop yields declined, uh, pests came because the soil didn't dry out in the same way in the dry season that it had before. And so there were vast uh, problems with new kinds of pests that spread that made it much more difficult to grow crops. And that almost led to a new, new forms of scientific administration, uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, you had medicine uh, being imposed as as an expertise on the part of the British to solve this problem that had been created by these dams, so treatment of yeah, malaria. I mean, one of the advantages of being a colonizing power is that to some extent you could, sort of an outsider, start seeing the country as a laboratory for all kinds of scientific uh, experimentation and the development of knowledge. So you could actually develop new forms of medical knowledge that hadn't existed before. That was partly an outcome of that sort of imperial relationship. Um, but one of the things you were doing was just trying to catch up with the new diseases that you had brought on with your own colonizing presence. So for one example uh, of that would be that my father, the biggest um, plague of, of sorts to r repeatedly hit Egypt in the later 19th century was actually not one that affected humans, but one that affected uh, animals, particularly cattle. And this cattle plague was itself brought by these increased movements of um, of the colonial era of troops and of populations and so on. And it was devastating. I mean, uh, on more than one occasion, large numbers of animals were wiped out, not only in Egypt, but all across East Africa. And that's in a region at the time when, of course, animals were a source of of labor, of food, of agricultural uh, work, and so on. And again and again, there were these devastating periods of cattle plague with, with terrible consequences. So you could then, of course, begin to observe this and produce the medical knowledge that would eventually help um, eradicate these. But they were, they were, in many cases, problems that you'd created by the very colonial context that you were part of. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Haida, uh, talking with Timothy Mitchell, professor in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University. Uh, he's the author of The Rule of Experts and a number of different books. How do some of these phenomena uh, 
translate to today? Because I mean, you are a historian, but you are also you have a, a, a lot of disciplines that you that you research, and. You know, it, it it seems like the Egyptians would have been right to be skeptical of this expertise 50, 100 years ago. Um, but today we see uh, in, in the political sphere a uh, discourse that rejects expertise as well. Is that, is that skepticism something that is true and is that, is that an anti-colonial act or is there something that is – you know, benevolent about um, scientific research, uh, and and how does one tell the difference between what is a byproduct of colonialism and what is, uh, like I said, benevolent uh, application of knowledge? Right. The, the the thinking about the sort of colonial history of certain forms of knowledge isn't in order to reject them or to side with those today who sort of reject all forms of expertise. It's not a question of being pro or anti-expertise. It's a question of understanding better how certain forms of expertise came into being, but also how, as I uh, suggested earlier, um, like it or not, we live in a world that is organized according to systems of technology and forms of expertise. And expertise isn't something we can do without, isn't something we can somehow live away from. It's a question of how do we think about it politically. And, and what, what's most important is to understand that the scientific, the technical, the expert is not some neutral area um, Outside of our politics, it is indeed where much of our political life is formed and fought out. And what matters is um, to be open to it and to be uh, as understanding as we can about how forms of expert knowledge are put together and, and what it is that it tells us and what are the consequences of that. So, you know, one sees on the one hand the sort of demonizing of expertise uh, by the far right in, in relation to the science of climate change, whereas in fact climate change scientists have been, one could argue, by far the most open of any contemporary form of science in terms of the sources of knowledge, its availability, the, the the numbers of people from very diverse kinds of background who go into uh, constructing that knowledge. And that's not actually an example, I would argue, of the, the sort of normal problem we face with, um, uh, with expertise, uh, whereas there are other forms of knowledge where uh, on the on the contrary, there, there there's still enormous work to do to sort of separate them from the world of politics to protect them from any kind of openness or investigation, and that's where one one wants to be um, more wary of the claims, not to dismiss things, but to ask for them to be opened up, for there to be public discussion of how science is produced and how its claims are are validated. It's interesting you bring up climate change uh, because I, I feel like the skepticism in the way that science has been applied by uh, those in power um, ha- is 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 felt is acutely felt I think by most people in in uh, I don't want to say I mean democratic societies and in the belief now that for example climate change is a hoax so while mm-hmm. climate science uh, as you say is perhaps farthest from this colonial past of the creation of knowledge, there is nonetheless the assumption that because science has been used by uh, governments for political 
ends, uh, that that must be the motivation for calling attention to climate change, for example. And that that almost uh, discredits uh, scientific research entirely. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a real problem that we need to, to think about and address. And as I say, I think um, part of the way of doing that is the process that, to me, climate scientists have really uh, pioneered in many ways of being as public as possible, as open as possible about um, the modes by which forms of scientific and expert knowledge uh, are produced and in fact, if you actually look at the history of climate science, those who are either dismissing it or calling it a hoax tend to be the ones who have been opposed to that kind of opening of science to to, to public view in a certain way. In fact, in my other book, Carbon Democracy, I wrote some length about some of the very early work of climate scientists in the 50s and 60s when they first began to um, observe the, the increases in um, levels of of, of carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere and begin to realize in the, in, the, in the 1960s that these were probably connected with the burning of fossil fuels, the extent to which um, people in power, um, in Congress, in, in the U.S., in, in, in various um, U.S. government bodies, the length they went to go to defund this science, to shut it down, and it was actually, you know, the, the, the painstaking work over decades of a relatively small band of, of um, committed scientists who fought against, uh, with science, that attempt to defund or to disprove what they were discovering. And at the same time, we now know, of course, that the oil companies, the large oil companies knew about um, some of this, and as they began to realize its implications themselves, stopped their own research into it and tried, and then went on later to, uh, on the contrary, to, to put funds into those who, those merchants of doubt, as they've been called, who attempt to discredit the, the, the findings. So, you know, what one sees there as one investigates it is indeed um, science is very political, but saying something is political doesn't mean that it's untrue or it's fraudulent. It's rather um, that it's something that we need to understand as, as citizens, as people involved in the political process and be open to our own understanding as best we can of where it comes from and how it's produced rather than shutting ourselves off from it either as a domain of expertise where we have um, no right to, to, to penetrate or as something that must necessarily be fraudulent. Those are equally, to my mind, wrong approaches to thinking about the politics of science. That's Columbia University historian Timothy Mitchell speaking with Worldview's Julian Haida about the intersection of science and power politics. Coming up after the break, we'll hear more from Mitchell about how the export of scientific knowledge led to the creation of economics. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week we present a series of interviews from Worldview's Julian Haida that explore the intersection of science and power politics. We pick up the conversation from before the break with Columbia historian Timothy Mitchell, author of Rule of Experts, Egypt, Technopolitics, Modernity. 
Another interesting element that you've explored is the idea of a local economy and the world being divided into local economies. And one of the champions of this was the economist John Maynard Keynes. And the idea that science and, and, and knowledge and phenomena exist in, in isolated local areas. Um, and, and you write about in Carbon Democracy that, that largely the British energy economy was uh, coal-based for, for, for much of the beginning of, of the Industrial Revolution. And when the shift from coal to oil happened, all of a sudden the economy, the kind of the, – the, the technical knowledge of how to produce – you know things that 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 built up an economy, a market economy. Um, that, that that was moved towards places like the Middle East, where oil is more abundant and free flowing. What is it about thinking about the world as isolated economies that is kind of attractive to people who create science? What, what does that mean that uh, the local is being moved to another place? Right. Well, there's a, a lot packed into that question, and that's partly because you're referring to my book, Carbon Democracy, that also has a lot that it's, it's trying to say. So the, there's really two stories in the central part of that book. One is about the shift from coal to oil in the course of the 20th century, particularly in the, the decades just before and just after the Second World War, where industrial economies that have largely been coal-based start more and more to, to rely on oil. But the other the sort of change I try and relate to that is um, the rise of this other science, this other form of expertise, of economics, which has an earlier history but sort of becomes the dominant social science in those middle decades of the 20th century. And one of the ways it did that, one of the ways this form of science and expertise acquired its significance um, was that it began to talk about a new object that no economist before the interwar period, before the 1930s and 40s, had ever talked about. And that was the economy. Um, the word was around, but it had different kinds of connotations. But the notion that there is something called the economy that is this sort of um, almost sort of freestanding, interacting object that the purpose of government is to manage and control is something that dates only from around the middle of the 20th century. That, uh, of course, gave economists, because they were the ones who claimed the expertise in this this new object, an incredibly... And presented it, as like a hard science. Uh, they were able to present it as a, as a hard science, um, because at the same time, the, the, the discipline of economics became much more mathematical and sort of modeled its own methods on those of some of the, the natural sciences. But the, the connection with oil and energy that I, that I draw is the following. One of the things that government and economists figure out how to do is not just to talk about and define and manage an object called the economy, but to measure it. And there are various ways of measuring it that didn't exist before. And one of the things they can now do or claim to do is measure its size using, in particular, this new um, form of measurement that we came to call the GDP, the gross domestic product, which uh, was a way of measuring economic activity that was developed in the 1930s. Now, uh, once that particular and very peculiar way of counting the sort of intensity of our collective life had, had been worked out, it could become uh, this main object of government. The object of government was to 
grow this number, this thing called called GDP. And growth became the sort of defining purpose of government in the middle decades of the 20th century. Now, that was a strange idea that you could count things in such a way that for all of human future, they would continue to grow, to get bigger. Before that, you couldn't think that way about material life, whether you thought about populations or cities or food or any of the things that made material life um, hang together. There were finite limits to all those things. But suddenly in the 1940s and 1950s, there was this new way of counting that was much more abstract and seemed to project a world forward that would grow indefinitely. Now, there were various sort of tricks of counting that made that possible. One wasn't counting material things anymore. One was essentially thinking of the economy like a, a series of businesses with accounting relationships, and one was just measuring the way funds circulated among those businesses, and one could imagine those funds as getting uh, bigger and bigger. Um, so everything in, in a country was thought of as a business. Households, people were thought of as businesses circulating funds. But underlying it, I think there was somewhere, something else, which was that in this period when we came to believe in the economy as the sort of central object of our collective life, energy, um, carbon energy, was suddenly, for the first time, extraordinarily abundant and ridiculously cheap. And that's what the oil age was. I mean, coal had been relatively abundant, but nothing like the way in which uh, energy became abundant. So uh, given that all productive life depends upon the use of energy, um, the astonishing new abundance and relative costlessness of energy meant that you could discount looking forward the sort of the cost, as it were, of the fundamental thing you needed for all forms of economic life, namely a source of energy. And economics was built around that, where you don't actually count the true cost of, among other things, using up a non-renewable resource. But you also put together a world of expertise, a world of science, that imagines a future that will always be one of uh, unlimited economic growth. So that, those are the kinds of connections between the history of economics and the history of energy that I was trying to make in my book, Carbon Democracy. And it's, I, I think economics is a vitally important field of science and expertise, that it's important not to dismiss. One can't. They, the, the economists play too central a role in our life and our politics, but to understand where their claims of truth come from and how they're put together. And some of those claims are very robust, but they're robust because they're based on a certain way of calculating things, a certain way of leaving other things out of calculation. And understanding that, not dismissing it as a fraud, but understanding how it's done is, I think, something we've all got to be invested in. So is there a danger in putting uh, social science like economics or political science as adjacent to natural sciences, physical sciences, hard sciences, or are those, or those kinds of sciences subject to the same kind of social forces that, um, you know, come short of representing an entire uh, situation, say medicine or biology or physics? I would absolutely put them together, not because they're all necessarily completely equivalent to one another, but because, again, as I say, this is the kind of stuff that our world is uh, made up of. 
it, it's it's made up of oil and carbon dioxide, but also of prices and of GDPs and all kinds of other technical and scientific uh, instruments and devices by which we're measured and managed and um, made to feel inadequate or, or, or the opposite. So it, I don't think it makes sense to introduce some radical distinction between the natural sciences and um, the social sciences that attempt to copy some of the same methods. What matters is, in, in, is rather, as I'm suggesting, to, to approach them in the same kind of way, open to the fact that they do indeed produce truths, very powerful, very effective truths that can have um, a positive and or negative effects on our life, but that we can't just accept that as a fact and not want to know more about it. Politically, we need to know how are those truths produced? What are the the algorithms, the mechanisms, the the, the equipment, the laboratories um, out of which these forms of knowledge and truth are produced, including when our own societies become the laboratories for the production of of some of these facts, as they have been very often in the case of economists, for example. So um, absolutely treat them in in similar ways and approach them as forms of truth that uh, are often very powerful, and they're powerful precisely because of the effectiveness of their claims, Um, not because they're bogus, but those claims are based on certain ways of constructing and organizing the world and not others, and that's what... um, that's what counts. I mean, science is more effective the more uh, it organizes the world um, as a place where, where its, its truths can be demonstrated. Timothy Mitchell is a professor in the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia University. Uh, he's the author of The Rule of Experts, Carbon Democracy, Colonizing Egypt, and a number of different books. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Tomorrow we continue our series on science and power politics with a conversation about physicists who claim to be apolitical and how they became heavyweights in geopolitics. Hope you can join us for that tomorrow on Worldview. Did you know that you can listen to Worldview whenever and wherever you want? Subscribe to the Worldview podcast at the iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can even go to our website at wbez.org worldview and click subscribe. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, Char Jastin, and thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview.